Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at the Bulwark. I'm joined by our regulars, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, Damon Linker of the Week, and Bill Galson of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal. Our special guest this week is Despin Lockman of the American Enterprise Institute, formerly Deputy Director of the IMF's Policy Development Department and Managing Director and Chief Emerging Market Economics Strategist at Solomon Smith Barney. So welcome one and all. Des, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I was very thrilled to get uh, your participation this week because uh, you are one of the rare voices out there in the midst of a lot of cheering about this uh, $1.9 trillion stimulus. Um, of course, uh, Damon also has some reservations, but but there's a lot of um, sort of, you know, happy talk. And uh, you, you've you written a little bit about your worries about inflation. So it looks like by the time this is all tallied, we will have spent something like $5 trillion since the start of the pandemic, um, which amounts to 25% of the pre-pandemic economy. Um, has there ever been anything like this in history, in our history? Well, I don't think in the United States, you know, you might have to look south of the border to places like Argentina and Brazil to see that kind of fiscal irresponsibility. Uh, so this, in my mind, can't end very well. In the United States, we certainly haven't had this kind of peacetime fiscal stimulus. And it's, as you mentioned, we're talking about enormous amounts of money. So when we're looking at the Biden stimulus, that is an amount of $1.9 trillion. But that comes on the heels of a $900 billion stimulus that was agreed by the bipartisan Congress in December of last year. So what it means is that in 2021, the U.S. economy is going to get budget stimulus of the order of 13% of GDP, and it would seem that that is really running huge risks. You know, and I'd say particularly so in that the budget stimulus isn't the only thing that's going on. You know, at the same time that we've got budget stimulus, we've got incredibly easy monetary policy. So what the Fed's doing is it's keeping interest rates low, it's continuing to buy something like 1.2 uh, billion, uh, 120 billion treasury bonds each month. And what that's doing is it's pumping up the money supply at the same time. So what we're seeing is the money supply increasing by 30% which we haven't seen an increase anything like that in the last 60 years. So you, when you take together the excessive budget stimulus, the monetary policy ease, and on top of that, that there's a lot of pent up demand that people haven't spent you know, during the period that they've been under lockdown or changed their habits. Once Americans are vaccinated, they go out into the economy, we're really gonna see a huge boom. So 
this is all going to feel very good going through this year. It's very likely to feel good, you know, as the economy grows by six, seven, eight percent the remainder of this year, growth that we haven't seen uh, for many, many years. So it's going to feel good, but my fear is that we could get a very nasty hangover uh, by 2022. And um, <clears throat> Jerome Powell, um, the chairman of the Fed, doesn't seem at all worried about inflation. Um, does what? What are the tools that are available to policymakers and and central banks to deal with uh, with inflation? And and how you know, do you think he's not worried enough? <laughs> oh, absolutely. That it's not. You know, if it was just me that was thinking that that would be one thing, but it's what you're seeing in the bond market. So the bond market, what we've seen is a very sharp run up in U.S. Treasury bond rates, you know, if you look at the 10-year rate, we've gone from less than 1% at the start of this year to something like 1.5%, 1.5% the last few weeks. That is a very rapid run-up. And what that's telling you is that the bond market thinks that Jerome Powell is behind the curve, that inflation is going to come uh, in quite a big way. Another way you can see that the markets don't buy this is that their inflation expectations, their expectation of inflation over the next five years is now at 2.5%. That is above the Fed's target. So they're really concerned that Jay Powell is going to be slow to increase uh, interest rates. You know, and when he does have to slam on the brakes, that sets the United States up for a recession in 2022. So I'm not sure that I understand the politics of this, you know, because if Biden is concerned about the midterm elections, he doesn't want to have the boom, a big boom in 2021, followed by a bust in 2022. But that is something that he could be setting us up for. Let me ask you, um, to distinguish this case from what happened in 2009. So the Democrats believe that they went too small in 2009 with their recovery plan. Um, and they point out it did not boost inflation, even though at the time there were a lot of warnings that that uh, TARP and Recovery Act, which was, I think, 800 and something billion, uh, was going to. Uh, well, you know, that's a good point to bring up you know, the comparison with 2009, because that'll just show how excessive this budget stimulus is. You know, as you mentioned, in 2009, we had a budget stimulus of 800 billion that Democrats are now saying wasn't sufficient. The economy was in very much worse shape in 2009 than it is today. Fast forward to today, and what we're seeing is a budget stimulus that is more like $2.8 trillion. You know, so we're talking about an order three times the amount of uh, 2009. So maybe 2009 was too small, but it wasn't too small by $2 trillion. You know, so this is really what we're talking about. You know, you can make the argument that it was too small. You know, maybe we needed the Biden plan to be $1 trillion. But something like $2 trillion 
you're talking about huge amounts of money that are going to be going into the economy, and that really risks uh, setting off uh, the inflation. You know, when you mentioned 2009, I, I should mention another risk that uh, they running, you know, which is more serious than the inflation risk that that people like Larry Summers keep pointing out, and that is that you can get mark, financial market dislocation, because it's good to remember that this budget experiment, this monetary experiment, is occurring in the context of what economists are now coming to call an everything asset and credit market bubble. You know, by what by that what they mean is that we've got uh, asset prices like equity prices, for example, equity valuations today are at levels that we haven't seen since the pre-1929 crash. So we've got very high equity prices, we've got very high house prices, we've got credit markets that are way overextended. And all of those markets are making the assumption that interest rates are going to stay low forever. Mm. What Biden's plan is risking is that if interest rates do rise, and as I mentioned, we've seen that rise already, we've seen first signs of it, that if as you get the inflation, the interest rates go up, those bubbles in the financial markets could burst. And we know from 2009 that when that happens, that's not a pretty picture. So that is another reason why I believe that an excessive uh, budget stimulus is really taking huge risks with the American economy. Damon, you um, you wrote this week that you were concerned um, about this this lack of limits that the Democrats seem to you know they don't seem to think that there are any constraints on how much you can spend. Yeah, I mean, I, I, strictly speaking, they do think there are limits. I think most, at least aside from those who are kind of infatuated with modern monetary theory, which does seem to posit no limits, most people, especially elected Democrats, especially those in the Biden administration, recognize basic economic reality that, for instance, if we did get to full employment, and then kept doing what we're doing, then we would clearly have a, a major spike of inflation. But short of absolute full employment, they sort of feel like, you know, pedal to the metal, hit the gas, and just keep spending until we get there. And that does create, in comparison to kind of the norm of the last 40 years, it does create um, a new dynamic where Democrats feel like it is, it is perfectly fine to just sort of, you know, spend anything and everything in order to get everything, to get the economy running at a very fast clip. And I, it does create a very strange set of political incentives that I think could be pathological. For instance, you know, all of the stuff that's in this $1.9 trillion uh, relief package, there's a ton in that we can't get into. But, you know, we're sending checks to uh, huge numbers of Americans, $1,400, I think is what they settled on. Plus, we've started 
the, uh, the child uh, subsidy payments, which I support in principle as a good thing for the government to spend money on for all kinds of reasons, but we have that in there. Then there's, there are a lot of supports in other aspects of the economy as well. And if in principle the idea is to just keep spending until we get to full employment, it's not clear to me why, again, on principle, Democrats wouldn't come out in favor of starting to, you know, in terms of deficit spending, tackle uh, climate change in a big way, and finally get us to universal health care. I mean, Bernie Sanders ran for president uh, the last time, proposing something on the order of $60 trillion to $90-something trillion in spending. And note that that's a huge difference there, but it shows how kind of open-ended the spending proposals were that people can't even agree on whether it's 60 or 97 trillion. It was like um, monopoly money. Yeah, and that's precisely the right metaphor because when you get to the point where we are now where you have the Fed with its incredibly easy money uh, approach combined with just enormous federal outlays. It's not even clear, like, where is this money coming from? We're, like, we're not literally, like, printing money the way we used to talk in a more literal way. But unbelievably huge amounts of cash are being flooded into the market and uh, into the economy. And it's not clear to me how, once you start doing that, you have any place on principle from which to say, no, that isn't a big enough priority to spend on because then the other side can always say, well, we spent it. We spent money we didn't have on these other things. Why can't we spend money we don't have on these things? <laughs> and and, and the, the normal way politics works is that you have constraints that can't be moved because you can't spend beyond a certain amount without raising taxes, which is unpopular. So you're constrained, and within those constraints, you prioritize. But if there are no longer constraints, then everything seems to somehow get flattened out as equally important because everything we're spending is sort of made-up monopoly money. Why not spend some more made-up monopoly money on my pet project? So yeah. I'm, I'm concerned about that dynamic. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a, a really good point in your, in your column. Um, Linda, you, you know, Bernie Sanders is – getting up there in age. And so he doesn't have the excuse of not being able to remember what the inflation of the 1970s was like. Um, but but I remember it. I was in high school and I remember that there was a lot of panic, especially because inflation hits the elderly very hard because who, who are living off their, uh, well, in addition to Social Security, they're living off their savings, which is eroded by inflation. And it's very tough on uh, the poor. And, um, and so, you know, I, I am, uh, I'm wondering whether um, this gamble that the uh, Biden administration is taking is, is worth it. I mean, it seems to me that the risk is tremendous. It is tremendous, and I just want to thank Desmond for completely ruining my day. Um, <laughs> and uh, Damon, uh. Damon didn't help. Uh, you know, I'm 73 years old. I was sort of hoping to retire in 2022. And if the stock market indeed does crash, 
um, I'm going to be in very, very bad shape. It's not going to be nearly as nice of retirement as I hope. And I think the problem is um, we have forgotten uh, what uh, an enormous tax, really, inflation is and who it hurts the most. And, of course, it hurts the most the middle class and the poor and, as you suggested, the elderly. And, I mean, it is impossible for me to believe that you can pour this amount of money into a system, and particularly one where we are not in 2009 today. The economy is not in the shape that it was in our last big recession. And indeed, the reason we are in the shape we're in now is because of an external force, namely a pandemic, which had an enormous influence on shutting down the economy. Well, that is about to open up. So, you know, all of these uh, industries, even American Airlines, they were very pleased. They don't have to lay out 13,000 employees that they were planning on uh, having to furlough because the money now has come through and they're going to be able to keep them on board. Well, you know, I'm glad for those 13,000 people, but very soon you're going to start seeing airplanes fill up again. And that uh, is going to mean that, you know, many of those 13,000 may not have been furloughed for very long. So I think, you know, we used to think of, of the Democrats as the tax and spend uh, party. Well, you know, they've forgotten the tax part. Uh, it's now only about spending. And that cannot go on forever. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried about this, uh, this huge stimulus that's just been passed. It's not that, you know, don't want to see money spent on good things, as, as Damon suggested. Uh, but, um, you know, it's got to come from somewhere and has to be paid in some way, and we're all going to end up paying for it. Yeah. Uh, the Republicans, of course, have become the cut taxes and spend party. Um, and we can't right. lose sight of that fact that they've lost right. all credibility on matters of fiscal rectitude uh, because of their conduct when the you know economy was booming uh, under Trump and they and they cut taxes and increased the deficit tremendously. So um, so they have no they have no credibility and bona fides. But um, but Bill, I. I wonder if you're as worried as we are about the inflationary possibilities here and also whether you possibly can answer this question, which is, I mean, it does seem when you read what the what the Biden administration people are saying, that they are really bound and determined not to make the mistakes that the Obama people made. And they are, um, for example, Biden's going to make a speech tonight, and then he's planning a road trip to tout the benefits of this bill because he feels that they didn't do enough of that in the Obama years and therefore didn't get credit for things. Okay, but why is there... Why do they resist seeing that the 2009 economy was in a completely different place from where we are now? I have so much to say and so little time to say it. Okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I can't help noting, uh, you know, this tone of lament for the good old days uh, when Democrats raised taxes. Uh, the, uh, you know, is it, is it better to spend a lot of money and raise taxes, ra raise taxes to pay for these programs or not to raise taxes at all? Uh, we shall see. Uh, but on the, on the current situation, first of all, just to, just to state clearly where I am, 
I got so frustrated a couple of months ago that I sat down and did my own budget, uh, which I then circulated to uh, Democrats and Republicans that I hoped might be compromised minded. Uh, and I can justify spending about $1.1 trillion to deal with all of the pressing problems that have been identified. And the remaining $800 billion struck me as hard to justify on either macroeconomic grounds or uh, as, as cures for particular ills that have been identified. So I am not complacent about the size of the bill that's heading to the president's desk, uh, nor am I complacent about the possibility of you know, across-the-board pressure on prices known as inflation. Uh, but this, this has a history, which is why uh, those of us who are, are concerned are having a lot of trouble getting any traction. Uh, after Paul Volcker used brute force uh, to wring the inflation that had built up in the 1970s out of the economy, we have been in a nearly 40-year cycle of declining interest rates and, decli and declining inflation. Uh, two full generations of investors have grown up who did not experience what we experienced in the 1970s. And it is perfectly understandable why, after so many warnings of inflation uh, resulting from budget deficits were sounded in the first two decades of the 21st century and no inflation ever materialized, that there should be some skepticism now when the same old arguments are trotted out. I happen to believe uh, in a substantial portion of what Desmond stated. Uh, and I do think that virtually every economic force that I can now name is pointing in the same direction, namely higher inflation. But the world has changed too. I mean, the classic definition of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Well, the globalization of the economy has made the supply of goods a worldwide issue and not just a domestic issue. So while there's a real threat uh, that the money, the, the purchasing power that's being generated will leak out into economies around the world, especially China's, uh, we have to take into account the fact that the supply side of the supply-demand equation has changed pretty fundamentally. We don't know how much of a downward pressure that is exerting on inflation, but we're about to find out. Right. We're about yes. to find out, and we'll see, we'll see just how much the world has changed. Uh, it, just one, one point of modest correction. Uh, Damon said, well, we're not exactly printing money. Uh, as Desmond pointed out, we are exactly printing money. The 21st century style. You know, the, the Fed is monetizing the debt to the extent of $120 billion per month. That's $1.4 trillion per year. 
And although these are electronic transfers in Fed accounts, it amounts to the same thing. And the, you don't have to be a dyed-in-the-wool monetarist to worry about the consequences of increasing the money supply as fast as we've been doing in recent, in recent months. And down the road, things are likely to happen <clears throat> on the inflation front uh, that uh, we're not going to like as a country. But to conclude, nobody knows how big these effects are going to be in the new world economy in which we're living. Okay, um, Des, a uh, final question for you. Um, so it, unless Joe Biden listens to this podcast and says, wait a minute, I'm having second thoughts, um, he, he's going to sign this bill tomorrow. Um, uh, so in light of that, um, what, what can happen to staunch the potential uh, inflationary spiral um, is it just the Fed now that the Fed will raise, could raise interest rates, which of course would not, which would, you know, which would uh, hamper the economic recovery? Uh, are there any other things that can be done to uh, ward off the inflation? Well, you know, one of the things about the Fed is what the Fed should be doing is it should start be start raising interest rates. You know, monetary policy works with a lag. But basically what Jerome Powell has been telling us is that he's not going to raise interest rates anytime soon, and he's not going to stop printing the money by buying these bonds anytime soon, because in fact, he is in the camp that we need a little bit more inflation than we've had in the past. So he's going to be quite comfortable with allowing inflation to rise above his 2% target for some time. And he's not going to be thinking of raising interest rates uh, until he actually sees the inflation. So that means that he is really going to be behind the curve in tightening interest rates. And just to emphasize a point that Bill made, we are printing money in a big way. And I'm not talking about the Fed's high-powered money. I'm talking about broad money in the United States today is growing at a rate of 30%. That is the fastest rate that we've seen in the past 60 years by a long shot. The last what is, time what is broad money? Sorry, can you explain? Broad money is what people have got in deposit accounts and savings accounts. Oh. Their money. It's not just the high-powered money that the Fed is printing that unlike 2009, what we're seeing is we're seeing that the banks are actually lending this money. So when the Fed buys these bonds, it multiplies up through the system. And we're now seeing the money supply growing by 30%. You know, and uh, I would just recall that Milton Friedman famously said about inflation that it was everywhere and every time a monetary phenomenon. So when you see money supply growing at this kind of rate, you don't have to be a monetarist to know that something is way out of whack yeah, and that we might have problems ahead. Just the last thing I'd say is, aside from the Fed, who is not going to interrupt this process, what could interrupt this process is if we get a return of the bond vigilantes, if these bond vigilantes send interest rates high on the long-term rate, that can burst bubbles. 
if the bubbles burst, we're going to be in a totally different ball game. We're going to be in the ball game that we were after the 2008-2009 U.S. housing and credit market bust, except it's going to be on a much larger scale because these bubbles now are global and these bubbles are really of a very big size. Well, that's enough to ruin everybody's weekend. Uh, be prepared to be prepared to work until eighty, Linda. Gosh, I oh, am. Well, um, Desmond, thank you um, for for sharing that with us and uh, for your wisdom. And uh, we uh, look forward to. Uh, I hope we hope you're wrong, but we don't think no, you I are. I hope I'm wrong too, but as Bertrand Russell might have said, uh, all the clues are pointing in that direction. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Um, so um, if a raging inflation in 2022 doesn't, uh, doesn't destroy the Biden administration, um, there's something else that might, which uh, Linda, you um, you wrote about this week, which is that we have a um, we have a budding border crisis again, um, and um, the the number of unaccompanied minors uh, streaming toward the southern border has uh, something like quadrupled since um, since Biden became president. It seems pretty clear that. It is in part because the what message has gone out that you know we're that the battle cruel policies of the Trump administration are being abandoned in favor of something more humane. But now what to do? All right. Well, I'm about to make your day a little bit brighter um, okay. because it's really not as bad as it seems. Now, Kevin McCarthy is assembling, you know, a dozen Republicans to go to the border and try to make a big deal of this because the Republicans have no policy agenda. So without apology agenda, let's beat up on uh, illegal immigration. That seems to be right. the go-to issue for the Republican Party. Well, it's really not quite as bad. Yes, the numbers for February were very high. About 100,000 persons were apprehended uh, at the border. But we have to understand who these people are and what is and isn't happening. Uh, first of all, almost 40% of those people who were picked up were recidivists. Now, why were they recidivists? Well, under the Trump administration, uh, the Trump administration last year during the pandemic invoked a public health uh, provision called Title 42, which allowed uh, the Border uh, Patrol basically to kick people out immediately, no matter if they were claiming asylum or, or any other thing. They didn't have to go through any process. But it also did something else, which is to change the procedures. I mean, under in the past, uh, the provision in the immigration law in which you return somebody, uh, once you've been caught once, if you come in again and try a second time, you are actually committing a felony under Title VIII of the immigration law. But they didn't use that provision. They used this health provision, and they didn't collect the information, and they didn't um, invoke any kind of greater penalty because Title 42 doesn't allow for that. And so you've got people who are essentially in a revolving door. So that 100,000 uh, persons trying to cross, many of them are single men, 
And as I say, almost 40%, something like 37% of them. So in other words, 37,000 of those people are people who might have come in in January as well and been turned back and are just coming back again. So so that's one thing. The other is that um, we have, in fact, been more successful, even under the Biden administration, in discouraging people from heading to the border. Uh, Mexico um, was able to stop a caravan of new persons heading from Central America, turn it back. They also stopped a couple of busloads in March. And so uh, most of the people who are coming through now are people who have been turned back in the past are waiting just across the border. Now, there are some changes that have been humane, and I think we should all applaud, and that is under our asylum laws, you have to, number one, put foot on U.S. soil uh, to claim asylum. And of course, because of the way in which the Trump administration invoked this public health law, they basically sent all those people back to Mexico immediately, letting them do what has been done in the past, which is to process their complaint. What the Biden administration has done is they're now letting in 25 asylum seekers per day. I mean, this is not thousands of people. It's 25 per day who are now being processed as they normally would have been in the past. Uh, They are, in fact, tested for COVID. Um, It depends on the state and which, you know, border crossing they came through. But some some states, California, for example, the San Diego crossing uh, is imposing a 10-day quarantine uh, on people. Um, and that, that is, all of this is not necessarily bad. Um, the one area, and, and it's the area I wrote about that I think is concerning, is the number of unaccompanied children uh, that are now coming uh, uh, in. And again, under Trump, those unaccompanied children might, af- you know, d- after the pandemic hit, would simply have been turned back to Mexico, where the, many of them were in very, very dangerous uh, conditions. And so last month, there were 9,000 unaccompanied children. That's almost double what it was uh, in January. And um, that that is difficult because it's a very specific procedure, which I outlined in the article I wrote for The Bulwark, uh, about what you do with those children and how quickly uh, they can be processed through the system and put in either foster homes or in many cases, most cases really, Uh, with family members who are already here. Uh, But the most important thing I think that the Biden administration is doing and should be applauded is that they have asked for $4 billion to try to deal with this problem at its source. These people are coming here because they're fleeing conditions having to do with drug cartels and gang activity and criminal activity and corruption, which makes it very dangerous uh, for them uh, to live in their home country. And so that money, uh, which would be aid to Central America and not to governments, but to the pri- through the private sector and, and in cooperation with the private sector and non-governmental organizations, try to get a hold of what is actually happening uh, that is driving these people. So it's not quite as bad, but that doesn't mean that on Fox News and in Republican circles, you're not going to see um, a... Uh, an enormous, uh, you know, blowback uh, because of these new numbers. Linda, did do I have this right that uh, during the Obama years, um, they attempted to institute a policy of letting people request asylum 
from within their own countries, not having to put a foot on U.S. soil. Is that Absolutely. right? That's exactly yeah. right. And there, and the new uh, immigration law that, that uh, the Biden administration is uh, supporting does the same thing. They're going to try and create uh, alternatives in third countries. They're going to try to uh, find safe havens for people who are fleeing, legi- uh, fleeing legitimate uh, persecution. Uh, and, and that's the only way to solve this. You can't, I, I mean, the asylum laws that we created were not really intended, uh, I don't believe, for the, the purpose uh, for which they are now being used. Extreme poverty um, is obviously terrible, but that is not what the asylum laws were originally uh, intended for. They were meant more for religious and political persecution. So th- they are going to try and deal with this, and I hope, and hopefully they'll do it in a, in a humane way. And by the way, uh, listeners can, can go to the National Immigration Forum's website. There is an explainer on what's actually happening at the border. Uh, I'm a senior fellow there now, and uh, a lot of this is uh, available if you want to look into it further. Thank you. Um, Bill Galston, I was looking at a a survey about what Republican-based voters really care about, and um, there are very few issues that are not culture war kinds of things that really excite them, except this one, except immigration. Uh, This is is a, a potential political, major political vulnerability, I think, for for the uh, Democrats. Do you agree? Uh, It is a potential vulnerability, uh, but there's a difference between thunder on the right on this issue and broad-based opposition to what the administration is doing. Uh, I have taken it for granted uh, that the Republican base uh, will never go along with comprehensive immigration reform and will always will always be uh, moved to you know, paroxysms of fury uh, by the latest emissions from you know, people in the right-wing media talking about the immigration issue. Uh, the question the, the question it seems to me is whether the broad-based coalition uh, that brought Joe Biden to power, uh, coupled with reasonable Republicans who understand that the current status quo is not, is, is not sustainable, are going to get together and try to have a more reasonable conversation about what needs to be done. Uh, I am, I have to say, a skeptic uh, that the Biden comprehensive immigration reform will do any better than comprehensive packages that have preceded it over the past 15 years. Uh, I hope Linda's more optimistic about that and can talk me into some greater optimism. (laughs) But I think the best we can do for now is make progress piecemeal. Uh, So I strongly support breaking out the DACA issue and, and moving legislation for a clean DACA fix, that is DACA not linked to anything else. Uh, and Dick Durbin, with some support on the other side, including including from Lindsey Graham, has been pushing such a proposal uh, for a long time. I know for a fact that there are members of the Republican leadership in the Senate who support a clean DACA bill. And I think there's a, I regard it as low-hanging fruit that can be plucked if there's a, if there's a decision to do so. I also think that we need 
uh, on a crash basis, a modernization and regularization of the terms under which uh, temporary workers come into the United States, not just from south of our border, but also from Central and Eastern, Eastern Europe. Uh, so we can mitigate the crisis to some extent, uh, but we're not going to solve the problem unless we figure out a way of summoning the political will to do something that we've been trying to do since at least 2005 with no success. Damon, <clears throat> I'm for doing something about those um, Canadian imports like uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, <laughs> there must be, must be something we can do to keep them uh, from coming across the northern border. But, uh, but in any event, um, look, I was reading something about this the other day, and, and someone said, you know, that, oh, this is if, – if there's this uh, press of, of new uh, asylees and, and refugees and so forth uh, at the southern border, it may torpedo efforts to get even DACA. Um, is that your sense of it? I mean, I, I did have the feeling, even during the – depths of the Trump anti-immigration stuff that that DACA at least was one thing that most people thought they could come around to. Maybe not most Republicans, but certainly most Americans. You would think so. I mean, even during the height of, of Trump's demagoguery on this, at, when he was president, polls would still show strong support even among Republicans for uh, for fixing the DACA problem. So you would think that that would be low-hanging fruit. But the problem, I think, and, and it still might work, I should say that. I do think, I agree with Bill, that that is uh, probably the best path forward to make some progress on which we might build. Uh, and, and addressing that would help because it would take away that uh, kind of recurrent problem that keeps coming up. Um, but the, the bigger problem is that so much of the right now exists for the sake of the demagoguery, that things aren't said and done in order to fix problems. They're done to kind of whip up anger that then can be marshaled into uh, people showing up to vote and giving the Republicans more power. There's kind of this pointlessness to it in, a, in the sense that there's no goal in mind policy-wise. It's just enhancing power. So, you know, the, you mentioned earlier about Kevin McCarthy uh, going to the border in order to make a big deal about the kids coming through. Uh, I'll note that in uh, Linda's very good piece in the bulwark about this, uh, you know, just in passing, she notes along the way that when kids come across, uh, they are required, the, the uh, Customs and Border Patrol agents are required to let them in and hand them off to a, another agency within HHS by law. In other words, a law passed by Congress itself, so like all laws. So, uh, you know, this is a problem that we have made ourselves, and for the Republicans to you know, say, look, this is just an example. There now they've gone back on what the great Trump was doing and they're letting these kids back in and that's just going to encourage more kids to come in. Well, they're doing this because that's what the law says. And unless you're going to extend, uh, you know, Trump's ban on letting people come in at all because of the pandemic, which is ending anyway, 
Um, we have to deal with this, and it's our problem to deal with, but the Republicans don't seem to actually want to solve it because they gain by by images on the news, on Fox News, that make it look like uh, Biden has invited all of these people in illegally. So it's, it's a poisonous situation. And um, again, my, I guess my takeaway would be, yes, let's do our best to, to address the DACA problem and then try to maybe build from there. Hmm. So when you said it's a poisonous situation, my first thought was, so situation normal. <laughs> yeah, um. probably. <laughs> Uh, so Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, said that uh, – is that his first name, Greg? Yeah, anyway, Governor Abbott said um, that that Biden was, was purposely bringing in uh, illegals with COVID uh, to, to the country. So there you go. That's the level at which they are arguing. And speaking of that, let's turn now to the state of the Republican Party uh, because it strikes me that uh, with the passage of this very um, – populist, huge spending bill by the Democrats, um, the Republicans who have been advertising themselves as the new blue-collar party are in a weird spot. So um, so I'm going to start with you, Bill Galston. Um, the, the Republicans, they have picked up some working-class voters, as we talked about extensively um, on last week's podcast. Um, it's, it's not crazy, but... Um, but at the same time, they don't seem to have grown into their identities at all. Um, they they seem not to have any real policy meat to put on the bones of just calling themselves the Sam's Club, not Country Club party, to quote Marco Rubio. I couldn't agree with you more, Mona. Uh, and there's a history to this. Uh, the the working class has been migrating towards the Republican Party now for decades, really since the cultural uproar of the late 1960s and early 1970s and the debate about Vietnam, where the working class by and large was on the hawkish side. Uh, and Republicans have reaped the political benefit of increased working class support without ever having to develop a working-class economic agenda. Uh, and uh, to fully embrace a working-class economic agenda would be to uh, change policies in a number of areas where advocates of small government would oppose increased spending, where corporate Republicans would oppose all sorts of measures uh, such as uh, less free trade, uh, less, less generous immigration laws, and others that would work, they believe, I think with justice to their disadvantage. Uh, and so the space within the Republican coalition to shift economic policy in the direction of the working class, it has been pretty small and it doesn't seem to me to be expanding, with one exception. And that is that Republicans, I believe, have abandoned any lingering uh, affection that they might once have harbored for deficit reduction. Uh, I think it is now orthodoxy within the Republican Party that deficits don't matter. Uh, this is a trend that's been growing within the Republican Party for 40 years since 
Ronald Reagan said that he was going to cut taxes, increase defense spending, and 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 lower the deficit. And when he was challenged a couple of years later, he said, in effect, well, two out of three ain't bad. Uh, and the number three in that list has remained third on that list ever since. Uh, For Democrats, and, too. Well, I look, uh, look, I'm not... I'm not saying that Democrats were ever deficit hawks, although I happened to work for a Democratic president who was pretty close to one. When you get yeah, down to that it. is true. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, but the the real news here is that the Republican Party has joined the Democratic Party in this indifference, which means it's going to be a very long time before we ever again see the equivalent of the Simpson-Bowles Commission. It will take a real economic crisis to revitalize that line of thinking. Uh, but by and large, I agree with you that, you know, that the Republican, the, the working class in strictly economic terms has gotten remarkably little out of its alliance with the Republican Party. Linda, um, we, we decided we weren't going to talk about the royals on this podcast, and uh, we've stayed away from, from Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Um, and we've stayed away from Mr. Potato Head, but I cannot resist uh, because it does say something about where the Republicans think they, their vote is and how they think they can keep um, their their voters uh, happy. Uh, we we should talk about Neanderthal Gate uh, because because you know you recall that that uh, several couple governors, Mississippi and Texas, said that. That uh, they were going to open and they were they were going to eliminate mask mandates, uh, you know, completely last week. And uh, President Biden said that was Neanderthal thinking, and that of course got Fox News and the rest of the crew going. And so, Marsha Blackburn, Senator Marsha Blackburn, <clears throat> said this. She said, "Now, by bear in mind, well, okay." She said, "Neanderthals are hunter gatherers." They're protectors of their family. They are resilient. They're resourceful. They tend to their own. So I think Joe Biden needs to rethink what he is saying. Now, a couple points, Linda. One is Neanderthals <laughs> went extinct about 30,000 years ago, so her use of the present tense was interesting. Um, but uh, but is that the best way to keep the working class happy is to say – is to defend Neanderthals? <laughs> well, it is – I, I – I, Beg to differ in disagreeing with you. Yes, as as a group, they went extinct. But for any of you who have taken the 23andMe or some of the other <laughs> DNA tests, uh, you can, in fact, find out how much Neanderthal DNA you carry. That is true. Uh, and, and I have to say, I'm a conservative, but I have less, apparently, than the average uh, person uh, of Neanderthal genes. So, um, by the way, they had bigger brains than modern Homo they sapiens. Did. They did. Yes. And, yes. And it now appears that they had language. Uh, we're finding out uh, yep. that they were at least capable. So, 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 Marsha, we're with you, baby. Now, yeah, we're with you. But look, I, I do think that was uh, a mistake on his part. So we all remember what the deplorables uh, accusation cost uh, Hillary Clinton. Some people think it may have cost her the election when uh, she, rever uh, she referred to the basket of deplorables that uh, constituted uh, Donald Trump's base. Um, I'm not altogether in disagreement with uh, <laughs> with her analysis <laughs> now, but uh, but nonetheless, I, I do think you know that there is there is a problem. The Republican Party 
has had a coalition that was more blue collar. Uh, you and I worked for the for Ronald Reagan, uh, the Reagan Democrats. That's how I became a Republican. Was I was first a Reagan Democrat, then became a Republican, um, and you know he did manage to appeal. And it is clear that uh, those who have voted Republican in the past, I wouldn't disagree with Bill Colston. Sometimes they voted against their economic interests in doing so. Uh, but uh, the cultural issues mattered. And frankly, that seems to be all the Republicans have right now. They don't seem to have any kind of coherent uh, policy in a variety of eras, areas. And we've talked about it on the program. Uh, they're not even in favor now of taxes uh, that pay for programs. Um, and they seem to be embracing many of the programs like the the child care, uh, not child care, but the child subsidy that was included in the $1.9 trillion package. You've got, you know, Mitt Romney and Marco Rubio and, and Senator Lee all sort of signing on uh, in favor, not necessarily of that proposal, but of something that would uh, give money to families. So look, the Republicans, uh, they need to get their act in order. They need to decide what it is they're in favor of and have it be coherent. And if they want to go after blue-collar uh, workers, I think they're going to need more uh, than just a, a crisis at the border to do so. Uh, yeah. I, I would just I would just add, though, that I think it's fair to say that Republicans have not been for raising taxes. Uh, they've been all about cutting taxes for the last several decades since Reagan. Um, and so you had this, this great symmetry of Republicans always – cutting taxes and Democrats always raising spending and Republicans too. And so um, we're in the hole we're in. Um, but uh, Damon, uh, there have, there's been another Republican Senator who announced that he's not seeking reelection this week. That was Roy Blunt. So that the total now comes to five uh, Roy Blunt, Richard Shelby, Richard Burr, Rob Portman, and Pat Toomey. Um, have all announced they are not seeking re-election. Um, some people have called them the governing wing of the Republican Senate. Um, uh, what's your analysis of why they're bailing out? Well, I, I haven't interviewed any of them, so I don't really know uh, in any particular case, but I guess I would uh, do the pundit thing and speculate and say that uh, it probably is pretty unpleasant to be a Republican office holder right now unless you're very much of the uh, kind of Trumpian ilk and uh, sort of get off on and thrive on, uh, you know, being talked about on social media, going on Tucker Carlson and uh, speaking to crowds of people who cheer on kind of red meat uh, that's pretty much all that there is these days on the right, unfortunately. And so I think of these these older guys, uh, you know, who've been around for a while. They've they've been in the Senate for a while. They've enjoyed the perks and the stature, and maybe even contributing in some ways to issues that they care about, and probably think that the future looks darker than the past, and uh, it's time to get out. You know, six years is a long time to hold a term, and um, 
you know, someone like Pat Toomey, like it's so funny as a as a sort of Democratic leaning centrist, and I live in Pennsylvania. When he was elected, I thought, oh, he's so like libertarian economic, like he's the club for growth. Like I I, I really didn't like him at all. And now, you know, just a, a couple of terms later, I'm like, ah, oh, he's one of the good ones. He he actually stands <laughs> up to Trump and actually cares about I don't know. The rule of law. Wow, that's rare. Um, so, you know, I, I for someone like that, I, I definitely sort of feel for him. Like, yeah, I don't blame you. If I were you, I probably wouldn't want to deal with this crap anymore either. It's, it's pretty thankless. I think the people who really are, um, are who are kind of thriving in the current environment are those who are who have been willing to kind of flip a switch in their brains and embrace this new Trumpian style of politics that's almost entirely based on negative partisanship, attacking the left, um, sort of either explicitly lying or in, in doing extreme exaggeration. Like Kevin McCarthy, you know, last, okay, this will be my one example of this. And I, and of course he's, he's in the house, not the Senate, but it's the same dynamic that last week, uh, the Democrats are passing this gargantuan, uh, relief package, uh, and what does Kevin McCarthy do? His most prominent public act that I saw last week is that he made a five-minute video of himself reading the cat in the hat in order to, to send a zinger about Dr. Zeus over toward the left and whip up the base. If, if you can get into that and, you know, leave that five-minute videotaping and feel like, ah, I put in a good day's work in the name <laughs> of the public interest, then Washington is the place to be. But if not, you know, maybe it's uh, time to get out. Yeah. Bill, did you want to add something? Yeah, just very briefly. I think, I, I think the real news out of these five announcements is that in, I believe, all of these states, there are going to be quite divisive primaries between Trumpified you know, young, young potential replacements for these senior senators and those who are cut more uh, from the cloth of the governing wing of the Republican Party. And I'm afraid that in current circumstances, the Trumpy candidates are going to have the wind at their backs. And many of them come from red states where the winner of the Republican primary is likely to be the next senator from that state. And so I'm afraid that uh, that what, however bad the atmosphere in the Senate has been and however ill-suited it's been to serious governing, it's going to get worse. Yeah, just to underline that point, Rob Portman, who was no profile in courage when it came to standing up to Trump, but who wasn't actually Trumpy himself, uh, is retiring. And, and uh, one of the people who's campaigning uh, for his seat is Josh Mandel, who until the day before yesterday was basically your you know garden variety, typical Republican uh, office holder and office seeker. Well, of course, now he is transforming himself into uh, a, 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 a MAGA guy, and he says he wants to go to the Senate to fight for President Trump's America First agenda, and he has denounced Governor Mike DeWine as a squishy establishment politician, and on and on and on. So that's a good harbinger of where, of where things are headed. 
Okay, uh, let us now turn to our final segment, something we want to highlight or condemn. Uh, Damon, start with you. Okay, well, given the amount of time we spent today talking about economics and kind of anxieties about inflation and spending, I wanted to highlight a, a piece actually from quite a while ago, from January, uh, but it's so good, it stuck with me. Uh, ever since, and I went back to it this week in writing uh, the column of mine that, uh, Mona, you mentioned when we were talking about this at the top of the podcast. Um, it's by uh, Bloomberg's uh, economic columnist, Noah Smith, who has, as so many do these days, a Substack blog. And he, on that blog, in, on January 22nd, wrote, wrote an, an item titled, No One Knows How Much the Government Can Borrow. And he, this is this is one of the best pieces of economics, uh, uh, economic commentary I've read in a long time. He just digs into the uh, the, uh, the literature among economists on this question of not just inflation but hyperinflation, which is the real kind of cataclysm that everybody fears fears as the worst case scenario, uh, where. You end up not with you know five or ten or twenty percent even inflation, but hundreds or thousands percent of inflation. Like most recently, Venezuela has been saddled with catastrophically, and he just goes through the literature and and points out that economists do not really understand what causes it and whether it's going to happen, how to forecast it. He uses a very compelling, simple image of how at the moment with these huge outlays that we're seeing right now uh, are sort of stumbling down an infinitely long corridor toward a pit of hyperinflation. And we literally do not know if that pit is 10 feet in front of us or 10 miles in front of us. And if for anyone who's really trying to think through these issues and trying to base it in something like either empiricism or hard-tested theory, this piece will really show you that we are stumbling around in the dark, and we truly do not know how much money we could conjure out of the ether uh, without, with or without having uh, a really bad consequence from it. So it's, it's worth reading and thinking about and keeping around. Excellent. Um. Damon, I think you might be single-handedly keeping Substack going. <laughs> That's true. A lot of the <laughs> well, at least, uh, at least, uh, so, like someone like Matt Iglesias is is great, and so is Noah Smith. So, uh, yeah, yeah. For well, certain I, certain policy people, I think, are really thriving there because it gives them yeah. a lot of flexibility about what they write. Well, I've been following your lead. I I subscribe to Matt Iglesias. I might have to do the same for this this Noah Smith. All right, Bill Galston. Yeah, well, I want to I want to shout out a uh, you know a thoughtful young Republican senator from Indiana, uh, Todd Young, who's been one of the driving forces in the development of what is called the Endless Frontiers Act, uh, which is the first really comprehensive effort to size up the Chinese technological challenge and to respond to it. Uh, it, it calls for a number of long overdue policies, uh, turning the National Science Foundation into the National Science and Technology Foundation, uh, you know, 
raising very substantially the amount of funding going to both uh, basic research and applied research, targeting certain areas where the Chinese challenge is particularly acute. Uh, and, you know, and, and Young, Senator Young has teamed up with, hold your breath, Senator Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, to introduce this bill last year. And lo and behold, Schumer is now talking about the, making it the centerpiece of the next big bill uh, to be considered by the Senate. I'm not sure that's going to happen, but even the public discussion of this possibility is a big step forward toward a bipartisan response to the Chinese challenge, which is long overdue. Okay, Linda. Well, I'm going to pick up on Bill's lead, as I often do, and uh, turn to something that has to do with foreign policy. Uh, the publication Persuasion, which uh, is run by Yasha Monk, who's a friend of ours, um, and I think has been on the program as well. Yes, he uh, has. Has a terrific uh, piece this week uh, on Alexei Navalny. It's called Amnesty's Disgrace. The rights organization shun Navalny. It's what Putin would have wanted. As I'm sure our listeners all remember, Alexei Navalny uh, was on death's door. He was poisoned uh, by Putin's thugs uh, as he was leaving uh, Russia, and he eventually returned because he has been the leading opposition to Vladimir Putin. Um, and he was recently sentenced to uh, two and a half years in a labor camp, and he's now sort of disappeared from sight. We're assuming that he has been sent off uh, to a labor camp. And he was uh, considered in the past by um, Amnesty International as a prisoner of conscience, but he's now been taken off the list, and this article by Yevgenia uh, Albots uh, goes into Navalny's history. Navalny is not exactly the ideal opposition uh, to uh, Putin. Uh, for those of us who believe in democracy, he has had ties to the nationalist movement. He's called, um, you know, he's in the past, he's made some unfortunate comments and allied himself with some people that were not altogether great. Um, but the idea that he is somehow a fascist or a Nazi, as uh, apparently uh, Putin's people are trying to promote and Amnesty may have picked up on, is simply wrong. So I just recommend it uh, to our listeners. Okay. Bill, did you have something you wanted to add? Oh, man. Oh, sorry. Okay. Um, all right. Well, mine, uh, let's see. I have two quick things. Um one is I was paging through uh, the executive orders issued by President Biden, as one does, um, and uh, I noticed that he has revived the White House Office of Faith-Based Initiatives, which uh, is interesting because it was started by George W. Bush, uh, and it was headed at first by a Democrat, John DiUlio, friend of mine. Um, and then it was allowed to sort of go into desuetude, um, though it was still on the books during the Obama administration. It kind of had a low profile. But uh, but Biden is choosing to revive it. It's an interesting thing to note because uh, there's there are some people, especially on the right, who think that they have a monopoly on religious in concern or, or sympathy. And, uh, and Biden is actually a churchgoer, and even though he doesn't apparently agree with the Catholic Church on things like abortion, 
um, he uh, he does take his religion seriously. So it'll be interesting to see what he does with this office. Um, and my other uh, quick item is from the Bulwark. Um, it's up uh, today uh, and for the next couple of days, I hope. It's called Take It from a Swede, Forget the Fight for 15. It's by, uh, obviously, a Swedish writer who notes that there are uh, consequences of, first of all, he notes that the, if we adopted a $15 minimum wage, it would be higher than anything in Western Europe. Um, and uh, and that with some of the countries, including uh, Sweden, that have instituted high minimum wages, have found that it causes a problem with unemployment among immigrants, and that this causes even more social problems. Um, so it's an interesting perspective, and uh, I highly recommend it. It's called Take It From a Swede, Forget the Fight for 15 on thebulwark.com. Linda, did you want to add something? No? Okay. Maybe we're having a problem with our technology. No, I, 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 oh. did, I did want to uh, just maybe correct you slightly. Uh, oh, okay. I, don't, I don't think that it's fair to say that Joe Biden does not to agree with the Catholic Church's position uh, on abortion. Uh, I, I do believe that he thinks abortion is a mortal sin to the taking of a life. The question is whether or not um, he supports um, a separation between his personal, private, religious beliefs and public policy. And uh, so I'm, okay. I'm not quite Duly noted. Yes. No, no, that's fair enough. Fair enough. Yes. We'll make that correction. <laughs> All right. Well, we want to uh, thank Desmond Lachman again for joining us. And we want to thank all of you for listening. Kindly rate and review us. You can find my email if you go to thebulwark.com, and you can also join, become a member of The Bulwark and join us for our live streams. We're going to have one tonight. We have one every Thursday night for our members, and it's uh, informative and fun. Uh, everybody participates either on screen or in the comments, and uh, we will be back next week as every week. 